This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk, your host. Today, I'm very happy to be talking to Sam Gwynn about a book called His Majesty's Airship, The Life and Tragic Death of the World's Largest Flying Machine. Uh, I got to tell you, Sam, this is a terrific book. It was really fun. I think it's the second book of yours I read. I did read Empire of the Summer Moon, which I think a lot of people know you for. That is usually true, yeah. Which I thought was a an incredible book. I mean, truly moving, deeply moving book. Well, thank you. And gripping, um, especially because we had just, I think when I read it, I had just finished a drive that took me through Oklahoma. That was kind of interesting. But anyway. Driving, driving through Comanche country. Yes, exactly. But this book... Completely different subject, and I'm. I got. I have to ask what it is that captured your attention about this story, uh, which you know we can talk about is the it's lighter than airships of the 1920s and 30s, which was an amazing period of time in um, aviation. I guess it was. You know, this would have to be considered aviation, even though it's kind of off to the side of what we think of as aviation. Uh, but uh, you know, I just have to ask, like, what what got you going on this? The way I select stories is maybe more like the way uh, journalists select stories. And, uh, you know, I was a journal magazine writer, basically, for most of my career, much of that with Time magazine. But, you know, uh, as a magazine journalist, you work hard in the story. And then on you know Monday morning, it's at the bottom of somebody's birdcage and you move on. And it's by definition, a short term endeavor. Um, let, but if I were, you know, a Chaucer specialist at Oklahoma State University or something, that would not be true, right? I would be in the field all the time, focusing on my field and and uh, doing that. And so I go with the good stories. And and uh, you know, Empire of the Summer Moon was just a fantastic story. And I also look for stories that engage in some way with major historical themes. I that has to be there for me, some kind of larger meaning or larger impact on the society itself. And so. In this case, this was an airship crash from 1930, seven years before the Hindenburg, one that is, everybody knows the Hindenburg, nobody knows this one, which is good, to my way of thinking. I like to operate in, with stories that nobody's ever heard before. But this is very, this was a crash that was intimately bound up with the, the decline of the British Empire. And it was all about technology and nationalism, and it was pan-European or pan-global is what it was. And so it, 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 I just thought it was one a great story. So two things have to be there, I guess, for you know to meet my my lofty standards for whatever I do. One is you know good story, gotta have the good story. If I don't have the good story, I'm not going to do it. And two, some larger impact, some larger kind of embrace of 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 world history. The specific answer to your question: There's a wonderful historian named James Morris who became Jan Morris. I think one of the first great trans historians, I think maybe, but hey, James Morris wrote, as James, uh, a trilogy about the British Empire called Pax Britannica. It's just flat wonderful. And the third volume of that was Farewell to Trumpets, and it gets into the 20th century and Churchill and kind of the the decline of of the empire. And it had a two-page section in it, a three-page maybe, about this, the R101, which is this airship crash, you know, this miraculous greatest piece of technology, largest thing that had ever flown, all this hyperbole. And I read this, and I and then I did what you know highly trained historians do. I I Googled it and to see like who had done this before. <laughs> and I thought there was going to be ten books in this subject, and really there was hardly anything and almost nothing recent. And 
you know, the only the only real significant re- piece of research in the field was from uh, 40 years before um, and not really by a professional writer. So anyway, so I so to me, it, it met it, it it met a lot of the criteria that I have, especially too that, that no one knew the story. And it was a great story. And I think maybe perhaps the reason that I ended up doing it um, was because nobody else reads James Morris anymore. Because if they were reading it, they would have gotten to page two hundred two, and they would have read it, and then they would have done the R one hundred one. Well, but they would have, they would have only read the three pages, and maybe they had the the um, the the inclination to take that more deeply, you know, to, to something more interesting. And w- what I think where you go from this is you talk about the you know the entire history of lighter than air um, aviation. Uh, you have to talk about you know how it. Um, uh, developed along a kind of parallel track with airplanes, and which I think you know it is true. We all, I think, almost everybody knows about the Hindenburg. A lot of people know about dirigibles from World War One. If you study history, military history, if you just run across it, you'll see that, and they into World War Two as well. But it is true that you found a piece of the history that I certainly didn't know about, and it. It is, I, I mean, I learned a lot. I, first of all, that the British at, during World War I had not advanced very far in dirigible engineering, whereas the Germans the were German the leaders Germans. in the world. So they, after the war, the British and somewhat the Americans also take on some of that technology. And I think the British in particular seem to have been entranced by the idea, you know, so were. the romanticism so powerfully overwhelmed their any kind of rational understanding of how things work. I mean, it was some of the things that you describe are just you just can't believe that it's possible that people would be that literally that dumb about <laughs> technology. It was and, the zombie idea, as they say, you could you couldn't kill it, but it it. You know, it was interesting because uh, it is about lighter than air air travel, which, you know, for a, a relatively large piece of the early 20th century was considered to be absolutely in competition with heavier than air, which we would call an airplane. Uh, and in fact, for as time went by, it seemed that airships uh, and by airships, I mean, rigid airships, which are not blimps. They have a steel frame into which you can put giant gas bags and therefore lift a lot more. But it looked like the future of long-range travel was going to be airships. So there was this whole first, I guess, phase of of the aviation industry when literally Count von Zeppelin, who made the first um, the first rigid airships, was competing dead on with the Wright brothers, which was kind of interesting. And as you say, one of the things about the from the from the earliest moment. These things were enormous. I mean, people couldn't believe that something 450 or 650 or 700 feet long could be lighter than the air in which it floated. I mean, it defied gravity. You know, we live in a planet where everything goes down. I mean, I drop my pen, you know, it goes that way. It doesn't go the other way. And so you had something at 500 feet long with 2 million cubic feet of hydrogen gas inside of it doing this. It was, they were technological marvels. Nobody had ever seen anything like it before. There was a romance, as you say, a romantic idea attached to it and a, a good deal of nationalism and national pride, but it was a, they were a real phenomenon. But, you know, it, it is, it's, 
I guess I keep coming back to this idea that they were so taken with the romance of what you've just described. I mean, I think R101 was 777 feet long, the largest airship ever built, uh, bigger than any, you know, anything ever seen. Bigger by volume than the Titanic? I know, just incredible. But then when you talk about the, I mean, you sort of try to imagine the technology that went into that, which was massive, the, the building works that they had to create, but then these sort of technical issues that they kind of glossed over, like the fact you couldn't, you can't land them. You have can't to, they, they don't land. Like they well, have you, to you can, you can land them, but you can't land them in any kind of a wind at all. If there's no wind, you can, but yeah, if, well, if, how many times so, is there no wind, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you can't but, land in a storm. You can't land in a storm. I mean, a, a ship can technically, you know, theor- theoretically go into a port, right? It's a safe harbor, a, an airplane can theoretically land anyway if the storm is coming. An airship can't. It's it's stuck up there. I, I know. But you I, bring I, up an interesting point though, which is that there was the story. My story is ultimately a story of human folly. Is why did these people keep pushing at this very bad idea? I mean, airships were these giant airships, rigid airships were uh, were vulnerable to everything. Uh, you know, we we all perhaps know from the Hindenburg what a what a hydrogen fireball looks like. But, you know, there were 75 of those in World War II. I mean, they were all, R101 was one. I mean, there, we human beings have only seen that one, but there were lots and lots of them. And the things were extremely vulnerable to wind. Imagine, you know, being in a six, having a craft with six acres of surface area in uh, in a 50 mile an hour wind. I mean, it, it doesn't work. And if you go near the ground, you'll be beaten to death. I mean, it goes on and on. They were extremely difficult to fly. They were made of, these gas bags were made of cattle intestines, you know, the, the you know, giant 10-story gas bags made of cattle intestines. The outer cover was thin, doped linen. They were immensely fragile, hugely vulnerable to, and people think of them to hydrogen, but to wind and storm and you name it. They, it, it was just, it was a case study in human folly. And that finally, the, the, the idea went, the rigid air, the giant rigid airship, um, went from zero <laughs> to like sixty to zero in thirty nine years. Right. What? Which you know, it's also <laughs> it is interesting in another way, and that's in the kind of history of technology, in the trying to figure out like what technology ends up succeeding, which technologies yes. fail, and you think about you know the airplanes of that same era, also made from doped cloth the same yeah, way so. you know not necessarily as kind of wacky as these gas bags uh and not as prone to uh destruction uh so easily but still not really like yeah, but, but but in the early days of flying they they were seen absolutely as as equally wacky Exactly. No, really. They it was right. it was it only gradually that airplanes started to forge forward, and after many 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 crashes themselves. No, you're right. I'm just picking up on that. No, I, I think it's interesting to see how um, heavier than air technology fairly quickly superseded, and it, it may be because of the number, the vast numbers of people that were able to put intellectual and um, technological engineering to bear on airplanes as opposed to only a few entities could put energy into developing um, a Zeppelin or a, a dirigible or whatever, you know, the, that there were many more people working on developing airplanes. 
and many it was a lot easier to de- to develop your well, much cheaper and right. and uh, and as you were saying that the the technology the problem is that airplanes were not a flawed idea they had their issues but they were not a fundamentally flawed idea but you could argue that they you know kind of what you were talking about earlier they didn't really know which no, they one didn't. of those technologies would win even though in hindsight we can see that the folly as you i think rightly call it of lighter than air was going to easily be superseded by the um e- evidently to them not clearly at that time superior technology of heavier than air yeah no that's absolutely right and and uh, even you know in 1927 which Lindbergh, uh you know flew west to east across the atlantic which is of course the easy way um, in 1919, a British airship that was entirely stolen from uh, the Germans uh, went a, two both ways across the Atlantic. Uh, 1919, eight years before before Lindbergh did, so that so as you move, I say even Lindbergh didn't necessarily prove once and for all that these technologies weren't going to work. But the, the the in in hindsight now we can see that heavier than air airplanes. You know, with advances in wing loading and engine technology and control technology, these things were, you know, you could see it was a stair step up where they got better and better and better and the crashes went down and they became more practical. And and with, with airships, the problems that they had, I would argue, from the very first Zeppelin that Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin flew in Germany in 1900 uh, were up and never changed. There, there was never a shift in their vulnerabilities or their ability to do anything. Well, so we should probably talk a little bit about this really important character, which was Lord Thompson, um, Thompson. who somehow was able to convince the British to, uh, and this, I love this kind of uh, conceptual, again, romantic notion that they were going, he convinced the government that they would use the, the, um, R101s, that that style, you know, they'd have a fleet of them eventually. Um, R101 was an experiment, as you call, I love the, the way you call it, the perfectly safe experimental prototype. That's <laughs> just unbelievably perfect. But that they would uh, use them to link the empire. The British Empire was gigantic, the largest empire ever created, and was impossible to, you know, really manage uh, from England to, you know, India by boat was a ridiculous amount to Australia, you know, like they had this gigantic empire, which they could not really govern in the 20th century. And they thought that they would use the Zeppelin. I mean, sorry, keep calling it Zeppelin, but the, the, you know, the lighter than air ship to, uh, link the empire. Uh, that was, that was the romance. And that's the, what you're describing is the Imperial airship scheme. And so we go back to Lord Christopher Birdwood Thompson, who's kind of the hero of the story. Uh, hero with an asterisk. Um, but uh, so as you rightly point out, coming out of World War One, the British Empire was very, well, first of all, it was now the largest empire in human history. It held a quarter of the world, period. That was enormous. It had picked up a lot of land um, from, you know, Germans and Turks and so forth um, after World War One, And this, of course, made the empire even bigger. And and uh, as you also pointed out, you know, a boat from if, if the uh, premier of Australia was going to a, the big imperial conference in London, it was a month by boat, uh, you know, and, and uh, India was 
you know, 11, 12 days. And, uh, and so this airship scheme comes along and it comes along is the great spearhead of it is, is Christopher Birdwood Thompson, who happens to be a man of empire perfectly. He's this, this kind of moment when the British empire is the largest it's ever been. On the other hand, the cracks are appearing everywhere. Ireland, the Irish, you know, re- rebellion and in, in South Africa. And of course in India, we, we know what's about to happen in India. Uh, and South Africa, we'd seen it in the early century. It was a very wobbly empire. Anyway, so with this, this idea that we're going to stitch the new world together with British technology, with hundreds of just technologically brilliant airships linking all the world together. The man who comes forward to kind of put this forward is Christopher Birdwood Thompson, who is from from five generations of the Raj. His whole family are military people from India. He is entirely a man of empire. He grows out of this. And he's a military lifer who fights in all of the big empire theaters. And so, uh, weirdly enough, he's a socialist, but it was a socialist, an imperial socialist. But he, uh, uh, so he comes forward as a kind of proponent of this thing, which we're going to spend a lot of money and we're going to populate not only will the world be linked. And so to Australia and back will now be, uh, you know, uh, 11 days instead of a month, you know, from, from London to Karachi in India would be, uh, would be instead of 12 days, four days. I mean, we're talking about radical shifts in the space time configuration of the empire. I mean, it's 11 days is way different than a month. So they're going to stitch this all together. Thompson was going to do this. He was going to, he was going to populate the air with these airships. And and just as important as everything else here, the uh, the technology that was going to be doing this would be British, which is such an empire idea. Because remember, if you go back to the great uh, British Empire, the the sea, you know, British as lords of the sea, and it was as much any, as anything else, it was based on technology. You know, that pounding piston, that the power of these ships, the biggest guns, this was all British technology. And so the new version of this, they don't have the military punch anymore, link the world together through air. And at that point, long range air travel was a, probably a better deal or for airships than for, for, for planes. Link it all together with British technology. It was sort of this new triumph of the empire. Right. Ironically, based on German technology, because the British were behind. And it sound and I think from at least what I learned from your book is that they didn't really advance the technology in a good way. They tried they tried to. Um and but the fact was that nobody ever really equaled the Germans and what the Germans were able to do. I mean, part of what R101 was was an attempt to improve on on the uh you know, in World War One, the Zeppelins had become the world's first long-range bombers, the first ma- weapons of mass terror. Uh, they they introduced to humankind the idea it could be an- annihilated from above by something other than a thunderbolt. This was all World War One, where lots of Zeppelins bombed seven cities in Europe. But and so the Germans had this; those didn't work out well for the Germans. Once the say, for example, the British figured out that you could fire a and it, incendiary bullet into a hydrogen gas bag and didn't work out so well for them. But the British were going to improve on all that and make it all safe. And, and, and of course, they failed miserably. But uh, Americans tried to do it, too, with helium, also failed miserably. Um, there was no one here who didn't fail miserably. Right. And, and it kind of, you know, I, I do, you know, you wonder also about the number of people who gave up their lives 
you know, they, there are a lot of people who die. I mean, most, the vast majority of anyone involved in a dirigible or um, airship crash, they mostly died. They oh, mostly died. Because it was, it was almost all, the Americans tried it with helium. They had their own crashes, but most of the other ones were hydrogen. I mean, when a spark hits the hydrogen, uh, you got about five seconds. And then you are incinerated. Right. It's incredible that knowing that they still went ahead, but that with R101, and I thought this was, you know, this was kind of sad and you pointed it out that, you know, we, the, the um, Hindenburg, we, it's recorded, you know, it, it's right. the, the crash of the Hindenburg probably made the biggest impact of any of these because it was so public. Yeah. Um, whereas R101 went down in France um, you know, in a storm, basically, uh, in the countryside and a couple of farmers saw it and that's about it. There was no recording of the event that could be shared visually. So you have this terrible disaster that happened, you know, away from anybody's uh, public awareness. And it was, that's that, what you just, uh, recounted there is really the story of these hydrogen zeppelins. Um, a lot of them went up in hydrogen fireballs that, and, and it's instructive to look at the film of the Hindenburg because it, it, it's the only film we have. But I think I estimate the book 75 fireballs in world war one alone, a justice, well, not perhaps not just as big, but they looked just like that. R101 was just as big, um, enormous hydrogen fireballs. And, and I think that that has a lot to do with one. We all remember the, you know, interestingly, the Hindenburg, uh, one of the reasons we all remember it is, I mean, there was a guy there from a film company, Pathé, who actually filmed the, the 20, 30 seconds in Lakehurst, New Jersey in 1937, which was then shown in movie theaters around the world. It was that nobody had ever seen anything like this. This was a talk about reality TV. Uh, this was, I mean, people just freaked out globally over this thing. But of course, we, we remember it was sound, but there was no sound. It was just a silent film. So sometime around 1960, I guess, uh, some enterprising producer decided to take, there was also a guy at the scene who, who was a radio announcer. And he was the one who was saying, oh, the humanity, oh, whatever, that guy, right? Yeah, right. So right. they took and they, uh, this guy, the producer, married the sound finally with the what you could see. And so now we have the clip that we all know, and, and it's the reason we all know the Hindenburg so well. But it, in a way, the Hindenburg, therefore, or ends up overwriting some of this other history because, uh, we'll, as you say, we didn't see them go down, even though my airship was, killed more people and uh, was, you know, an incredibly traumatic event in, in the United Kingdom. It was the, the most traumatic event for the nation since the sinking of the Titanic. But you know, history sometimes overwrites things. And I think, uh, you know, Lindbergh overwrites a lot of other things from the era. And the Hindenburg does too, because of that little, nice little 25, whatever it was, second clip. Well, and also, I think, as you know, you think about what what happened, the British were essentially embarrassed. Um, I, and I mean that in a, I mean, it was, it was something that they would rather forget than remember. You know, it's, it yes. was a disaster. It was. Uh, it also showed that they were unable to master this technology, which they 
as you pointed out, their empire is built on technology. They had the best in the world. The Industrial Revolution in England was the height of all world technology before the Americans, let's say, superseded uh, the British. But so the British, I'm guessing, you know, there's a, I, I don't know, I don't know for sure, but it feels like they would rather not remember the R101 in their history of British empire. I think that's probably accurate because they, it was a failure of, of, of technique, a failure of, uh, a failure of, of technology on some level, a failure. And of empire. Because as you pointed out, they were imagining this as being the way that they would control their empire. That was the cell, you know, where Thompson's cell was, we can use this. And he was able, he so successfully convinced a lot of people. Well, and they had been, and you know, this was technology that Britain had led for so long. And there were things suddenly around the war where they weren't leading anymore, like submarines they weren't and airships they weren't. And there were these things, these areas where they weren't leading anymore. And so it became a, a real point of pride. And one of the re, one of the things that drove the Zeppelins along for all those years was na German national pride. Very simply, that's where he got his money from. They just were, were immensely proud of, in spite of all the crashes, uh, immensely proud of this technology. And the, the British and the Americans inherited some of that, that very, that kind of nationalistic pride that we are going to be able to do something here. And so, yes, I'm, I'm agreeing with your, your point that I think that it is, it is a, it is an embarrassment. It, it, it was, it was an embarrassment to the British and so much so that it ended pretty much like that, their entire airship program. Yeah. It makes you wonder, you know, in, in thinking of the, of modern times, you know, with, with America, with the space program, having failures, which unimaginable in America, you know, at a certain level, we, we've just not had those kinds of tragedies with, uh, technology. Uh, we s have seen ourselves as being the leaders and then all of a sudden, you know, the space program has failures and people die and it's very public. Um, and it's and, very na and it's very wrapped up in nationalism, as was the space race in the in the fifties. That was God, and this is when I grew up. Grew up, you probably grew up then too. It was just nothing but us against the Soviets. Who was going to win? Who was going to, uh, you know? And uh, actually, going back to the Germans, as as Tom Wolf said in his book, you know, we got the good. Our Germans are better than your Germans. <laughs> it was, it was I mean, once again German technology coming from Werner von Braun and the V twos this time, but. But yeah, but it, it's all very, very wrapped up in national pride. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe there, there's, there, you know, you talked about liking to write about stories that have meaning beyond just the story. I think the story does have resonance um, when you think about nationalism, pride, empire, technology, um, romance, the romance of technology and a belief in Folly, you know, what turns out to be folly. I think, you know, it, it's not necessarily, I'm not sure I would call it the space race folly necessarily, but um, we don't know yet. It has, you know, we're not, we haven't fully seen that develop. But, you know, if you go back to the 50s, it sure looked like folly to a lot of people. Uh, what were we doing? And then we're putting these chimpanzees up in the, what are we, you know, with the dog or whatever, that was the Russian dog, I guess. But anyway, it seemed like almost early aviation, very, you know, and, 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 you know, and we should point out that, you know, any new technology must go through a period of great uncertainty and, uh, and great 
uh, and many, many crashes because, you know, I'm talking about how many crashes there were in the airship world. But I mean, that they were dwarfed by the number of crashes in commercial and private aviation, dwarfed. Um, and so these in, in early, early days of any technology, you're going to have these sorts of accidents. And, uh, but what happens with airships is that they never, they never grow up, I guess, they're like Peter Pan or something. They never quite, they're, they're, they're in arrested development. Well, and maybe it is, I, I don't think that there is a future for hydrogen powered, um, um, air vehicles, you know, even, even today, you know, there, even modern technology probably is not capable of harnessing, uh, lighter than air, uh, via hydrogen and maybe something else. But I, I think it, it, it I don't know that hydrogen will never be used. I mean, you mean as the lifting gas? Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, that will never be used again. No, it'll always be helium. So before we end, I wanted to ask you about, since you, you write about so many interesting subjects, are you willing to talk about what your next book is, or is that something that you're not ready to reveal? I, I don't, I, I don't really have an idea. It's unusual that I, I usually have, you know, some ideas kind of stacked up, you know, like planes at LaGuardia waiting to go, and even some ideas that, that go back years. But in this case, I have ideas, but I don't, I don't have one that I'm just going to just dive right into. So we'll, we'll just have to see. I mean, I would tell you if I had one, but I, I, I don't. Well, maybe somebody listening will will come up with an idea That's for right. you. Please send because, ideas to Sam. Yeah, <laughs> you could run a contest online. <laughs> That's right. Choose Sam's next book. <laughs> it's interesting. It's harder and harder to find, though, as a writer, as a historian, or as a book writer. You know, ever since the, the dawn of the internet age, has allowed every schlump sitting in every desk anywhere in the world to to canvas everything. You know, in the old days, you used to have to go to the New York public or something and, and burrow in. But now it's just pip, 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 pip. What's been done? What can I do? It's, and so you see these massive waves of there will be whatever, one subject, like the new David Grand book. And there were there's been six or seven books written on that in the last seven years or the yeah, year of the Lusitania, the Lusitania, you know, there were six books the year that anyway, everybody can, everybody can Google everything, scour everything, understand the public publishing history of the world, investigate ideas. And so it be, it becomes harder and harder to find, you know, an harder. idea that yeah. looks yeah. original, you know? Yeah, but then you make it original by your take on it. And I think that's the differentiator, that if you really know how to tell a story and you can capture it in your imagination, it captures your imagination and you can tell us that story. I think that's the differentiator. That's sort of why I'm not so worried about AI. You know, I think that you, yeah. we are the, you know, you're, you're the creative one and you will find a way of making that, bringing that creativity to bear on a story that somebody else might have looked at and seen nothing there. So I, I'm confident in you. Let's hope so. <laughs> well, thanks, Sam. It's really been great talking to you. Um, All right, David, it's, it's been excellent. Um, this has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I've been talking to Sam Gwynn about His Majesty's Airship, the life and tragic death of the world's largest flying machine.